Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye-opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. Okay, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with Risa Pereira. Risa is a Lyme disease advocate. She lives with chronic Lyme, and she's going to talk to us all about it. You may also know her from her Instagram handle at Negricon Lyme. So Risa, thank you so much for joining us. It's such an honor to speak with you. No, thank you for having me. I'm excited. Yeah, no, it's it's so great. And we're very fortunate to have been connected by the lovely Ali Moresco, who has also been on the show. Um, and I, I'm thrilled to be able to have this conversation with you because I'm also finding, as I'm sure we'll get into in this discussion, that representation in the Lyme disease community is really pretty piss poor. (laughs) Um, So, and I imagine that's because a lot of doctors probably presume that people of color just can't possibly have Lyme disease. Um, So yeah, yeah. Um, because that's how medical bias works. That's how racism works. Um, So with all that said, um, I would love to jump into sort of the top of your story. If you could give us some background on how and when you first realized you were sick and what you have done to take control of your health since then. Yeah, sure. So honestly, so it's, it's always like weird when people ask this question and I've been asked this question multiple times and it's like, it's still difficult for me to pinpoint a time, but there's, there's a, there's a specific time where it just started just like rolling downhill constantly. And I was 19 and I remember the exact day um, I bent down to pick up something. And when I stood up, I had like severe, I had described it as vertigo but it was more like a rocking sensation and then a pain in the back of my head, like just in the back, I guess it felt like, like all the nerves in the back of my skull were just swollen and like, um, like pulsing. So it was almost like pulsing. 
this is like, we're already talking neurological symptoms, which pretty much indicates this was chronic by the time you realized what was going on. Right. And that symptom didn't go away until this past January and I'm 31. Wow. So (laughs) um, I had other symptoms as a child, but they weren't, they didn't really, they didn't really interfere with my life. They were there, but it wasn't like, it wasn't as bad as the neurological symptoms. Man. So you were probably bitten by a tick or infected in some way quite early on, it sounds like. Yeah. I used to get really bad mosquito bites and the mosquito bites I would get, I didn't know there was a name for them until like last year. It was called Skeeter syndrome. Wait, I get really bad mosquito bites too. Is that when they get really inflamed and they're like purple, like almost like, yep. Like that. (laughs) Like they're really purple. And then sometimes they would get filled with like that blister with water. And I didn't know that was called Skeeter syndrome. It's like an actual syndrome. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. But it was crazy because my doctor every summer gave me antibiotics for it. Wow. So this was already probably having an effect on your gut microbiome. Right. So he was like, oh, here's your antibiotics. Because, you know, every summer, like your whole body is just like covered in mosquito bites. And I have family in Puerto Rico. So we would go there and like I would be bitten from head to toe, but I was a kid and like, you're like, whatever, you just kind of scratch it and move on. Yeah. Um, And my mom would take me on trips like to different islands in the Caribbean. So I was like always outside on the beach and I went to summer camp. So I don't even, I can't even, I was probably bit when I was like five. (laughs) Well, and it sounds like very likely it could have been a mosquito bite because we know that mosquitoes can also carry Lyme. Yeah. And I also, when I got my Lyme results back, I one of, I guess like one of the bands, it's actually shows if you've been, if you're positive for dengue, which is, um, what is it? Uh, it's not a parasite. Yeah. I, all I know is that it's like, you get it from a mosquito and you get it's it in once. the Caribbean. It's in the, cause I have a friend this happened to in high school and she was hospitalized for it. And they were like, if you get bitten one more time by a dengue mosquito, good night, Gracie. Yeah. So my mom grew up in Puerto Rico, so she was like, yeah, everybody used to be like, oh, my God, don't get dengue, like, or tu tienes dengue. <laughs> like, people, wow. it was like a whole, like, thing, like, you were, like, petrified to get. Wow. So when she saw it was positive for that, she was like, crap, <laughs> got that when we were, like, visiting family or something. But it's also, like, what are you supposed to do, live in fear and not visit your family? Right. Like, there's no way. Right. <laughs> I'm not, there's no way I'm not going to Puerto Rico. <laughs> no, exactly. So it sounds like, so you had the positive ban for dengue and you got the positive Lyme test, but you had the first symptoms when you were 19. So how long did it take between that first symptom showing up and you getting the Lyme diagnosis too? I got the Lyme diagnosis September of 2019. So it was exactly a decade. Wow. And how many doctors did you have to go through before you got that? Um, I say at least 50. Yeah. Doesn't surprise me. I don't even remember. Like, there's a lot of things I don't remember. Like, my friends Mm -hmm. tell me certain things, and I'm like, when did that happen? Well, you were sick, so (laughs) your memory was was probably affected. Yeah. They're like, how could you not remember? Like, it was such a great time, and we did this, and we were here, and I was like, you have a video? Because I have no, like, recollection. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) So in that 10 years, getting waiting for your diagnosis, obviously you're getting progressively more sick, I imagine. And, yeah. um, you know, what did that look like? This sort of 10 years of misdiagnosis or being undiagnosed, not knowing what the hell was going on, not having control over your body. I mean, can you talk to us a little bit about that whole emotional experience? Oh, uh, yeah. So um, 
when it first started, I waited, I guess, you know, like two weeks because you're like, oh, maybe I'm just like stressed out. It was my first year in college. So I'm just busy. And like my last year in high school, I had like three classes. So I did absolutely nothing. And then I went to like starting college and having like this full schedule again. So I thought I was just stressed out or I had like sinus issue or something. So you go to the doctor they and then they give you like some medication. Doesn't work. So you go to a specialist that doesn't work. So you go to another specialist. So I'd say I had about a year and a half of just testing. Like literally every month I did multiple MRIs. Like right now, I'd say I've probably had like 10, 10 MRIs. Um, I had weird tests that I can't even tell you what they're called. Like on tables where they like test your blood pressure and all these Tilt things. table. Yeah, they that, tested you yeah, for pops. Tilt, yeah, and I mm-hmm. didn't have that. And then they made me go to physical therapy where they like move the crystals in your head. That's a very like, different kind of physical therapy. And I was I'm like, used to. and I would go and then afterwards I'd feel so nauseous. And I was like, crap, I came here by myself. Like, and now I got well, And that go. could have been good or bad. That's the thing too. Cause you don't know whether it's like part of a Herx or if it's right. Yeah. You know. So I would just feel worse. And then I went to a neurologist. I went to, I, I probably went to every specialist. Um, and then I go back to my primary care doctor and he's like, so are you depressed? And I was right. like, so it's all I mean, in your head. Obviously. I'm <laughs> like, obviously I'm depressed. I have no control over my body. Yeah, obviously. But that's and not he the told, cause. And he told me, well, when you feel dizzy, if you're like walking in the street, just kneel down. So like that, you oh. don't <laughs> like kneel down like every 10 steps. That's not, that's not going to work out. He's like, just in case you it's fall Like he knew you back. lived in New York, right? Right. <laughs> Because that's the other thing. It's like in New York, someone's going to knock you over. I was like, they're going to take me into this like ward for being a weirdo. Yeah. And he's like, yo, just in case um, you fall back, like you don't want to hit your head on the cement. I was like, okay, fair enough. But also. I was like, so we're establishing that there's a problem here. Yeah. And he was like, so I'm going to give you these pills. And in a month, tell me if you feel better. And they were antidepressants. I remember it was Alexa. And I was like, ooh, wow. I don't know about this. Like, I'm scared to take anything that, like, alters something like that. And I took them. Sure. And it did help. Hmm. So I went on a 10-year-long journey of just blaming every pain I had on depression. So the gaslighting was in yep. full effect. And every time I would go back wow. when I would be like, it's back again, they'd be like, so you just want to up your, your dosage? Or right. we can just change. Oh and then I get to the highest dosage. And I'm like, so what do I do now? And they're like, well, we'll try a new medicine. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, why do you make this sound so exciting when it's not? And then they would mm-hmm. tell me, okay, so we'll check back in three months. Right. And then they would say, oh, and call if you know if you have any, if you're not feeling well. I was like, well, I'm not feeling well right now. So yeah, like I don't know what feeling well feels like. <laughs> right. Anymore. I don't even, I have no idea. So you were written off as depressed. Um, for 10 yeah, years. Yeah, they, they, and on my chart, it says major depressive disorder. Mm. Wow. So what made you dig deeper? What made you finally push to get this diagnosis? Like, was that encountering people in a community that made you think, gee, maybe this is Lyme? Was it meeting a doctor who empowered you? What was that journey like? Um, so a few years ago, I started getting really bad muscle pain. Like it was all over. 
um, my boyfriend at the time, like he would be like, oh, I'll give you a massage. And he would like rub my shoulders. And it felt like he was like jabbing me with like a knife. And I'd be like, okay, you can stop because I don't know why it feels worse. So I, um, I went to another doctor. I just kept like, <laughs> I was like, just a new doctor every time just to see if anybody gives yeah. me a different answer. And he said, oh, it's just fibromyalgia and there's nothing you can mm. do for that. He was like, have you tried yoga? And I was like, actually, oh, I have because you know why? Because I'm a yoga instructor. Mm. So I have tried yoga. I'm even certified to teach people how to do yoga. So yeah. I know how to stretch. I know how to do that. And I work in a gym, so I know how to work out. Um, like I've always been active. Like it's not, it's not that like it's, yeah. there's something wrong here. And then, um, I remember he told me fibromyalgia and I was like, I don't know why I'm not, I'm not sold on that. Like people aren't in pain for no reason. Hmm. Um, and that's kind of when I was like, I can't continue to live like this because I'm miserable. <laughs> and I've spent almost a good portion of my twenties, like, having a terrible time like I've just forced a smile for everything and like I can't keep doing that so I remember he they told me fibro in like April of 2019 um and then I was actually getting married in August of 2019 and a month before my wedding I felt so sick Hmm. and I remember I told the doctor I said just give me something to make me a normal human being for my wedding. And then I'll figure it out when I come back home. And I was an absolute zombie at my wedding. I was probably on like so much Zoloft. I was actually taking more Zoloft than prescribed. Wow. And that was a doctor who set you up for that? Or that was just... Set me up for Zoloft, yeah. Right. But are they the ones who overprescribed it too? No, I did Ah. I was so stressed. I was like, well, I guess they just, every time I go, they just tell me to take more. So I guess I just take more. Sure. There's, if it's a pattern. Yeah. Right. I was like, I'm not going to spend like waste my time, make an appointment, go. And then them tell me, okay, just take more. Like I might as well just take more, which was not good good at all. Not with psychiatric medication. Right. Cause I was actually on the highest dose already. So you can imagine when I came back home, it was not a good look. Right. And especially as a newlywed. Yeah, that's another story. Mm. <laughs> Which I don't mind sharing, but so, that's another story. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm curious, like, what what happened then? I mean, you got back from your wedding. You still don't have a diagnosis. No. And this is only two years ago. Yeah, not even. Yeah. Because it was August, yeah. So you got back and see, it sounds like you, you might have had a bit of a a mental health break after all those medications. What did that look like? So I got back um, like in mid August because we, I got married in Puerto Rico and two weeks after my wedding, I was walking down the street and I started like profusely sweating, which of course it was August in New York, but I felt like my body, I had no control over it. And I made it to like Port Authority to take the bus because I lived in North Jersey. And I was actually supposed to meet my mom for dinner. And I was like, Ma, we, I can't. Like, we need to go. Like, I, I'm not well. I get home. I laid down. And then the next day I woke up and my fever was like 103.8 or something. And I was like shaking, like shivering, but sweating. And then like under my eyes were really black. And I got to the hospital and they were like, um, seems like 
some pneumonia-like illness. And I'm like, what does that mean? Do I have pneumonia or I don't have pneumonia? And they were like, we're not sure. Mm. So I'm like, okay, why is anyone never sure about anything? Like, And at this point, I, it's like 10 years into you ha- dealing with people not being I sure. I went off on like every person that was in that room because I, they couldn't find any of my veins because I've had so much blood work done. Like my veins have been blown out at least 10 times in the past few years. So like you can't, they're never, they can never find them. Or sometimes when they injected the needle, um, my arm goes numb. Like I, like they have to take it out. And it's, it's just a, I had about six nurses come in to try to take blood and they tried both hands and both arms. So I was like bruised completely. And I was like, someone just needs to help me. Like, I don't feel well. I'm tired of this shit. Like, I literally yeah. just went off. And I'm, like, the most calm person. So my aunt was, like, wide-eyed. Like, oh, my God, I never hear her rise. Like, yell. Like, she's definitely, like, she's over this. Yeah. Um, and then a few weeks after that, like, my lungs were just shot for, like, at least. They were shot for, like, a good six months. And then, of course, COVID started. So I was like, oh, my God, did I have that? Like, is that what was going on? Like, I don't know. Sure. I don't even know. Like it was just a whole bunch of stuff because they couldn't pinpoint it. So Mm. um, about a month later, I went to Mount Sinai, which is like where I usually go, but I went to a different location. And the doctor there was like, you've been dealing with this for how long? Like the Mm. nurse asked me and she was like, how long has this been going on? And I said, for 10 years. And she says, no, like when did it start? And I was like, for 10 years. And she's like, huh, okay. Um, Like everybody was like really uncomfortable. So the doctor comes in and she says, I don't think I'm knowledgeable enough to help you. At least Which someone is a admitted response it. that I would rather have than for them to just throw pills at me. Yep. And she told me, I want you to see the head of medicine here. So they squeezed me in like so a few days So it took 10 later. years to escalate your case though. Right. Yeah. And I've been to Mount Sinai. Like I have years of a chart at Mount Sinai and it's digital. So there's like no excuse. And I tell the lady my symptoms. I was like the back of my head. It's not a migraine. It's not a headache. Like it's the back of my head and it feels like it's pulsing and it always feels like I'm rocking on a ship. Um, and I said, when I was in college, like sometimes my eyes, like everything would go black at like for moments at a time. Um, and she said, I think you have Lyme disease. Wow. And, and this I is the head like, of medicine at Mount yeah. Sinai. So anyone who thinks that Lyme disease isn't real. Right. Um, and she said, yeah, she said, I think you have Lyme disease. And I was like, that bug thing. That was literally <laughs> what I said. I sure. was like, like for dogs, like the commercial where it's like frontline. <laughs> like that's all I knew about Lyme disease. Yeah. I was like, you get bit by a bug and I don't know what else happens after that. And then did she do the Western blot test on you? Like what testing did they do yeah, to like, determine? Yeah, the Western blot, like the regular like CDC standard one, and it all came back positive. So even the Western blot came back positive, which is lucky because right. a lot of people require even more in-depth testing. Right. I, I, I always say like it was a blessing that that did come back positive. Yeah. Because at least wow. I have like the paper to show it. Mm-hmm. Like, no, no. Absolutely. <laughs> No, even my western blot's positive. Even CDC yeah. says I have it. Like, yeah. And then she's like, "So two weeks of doxy, and you should be on your way." Wow. So she treated it. She treated chronic Lyme with two weeks of two antibiotics, weeks which is pretty much doxy. all you can get covered. You get three weeks covered in maximum, I think, don't you? Yeah, I think so. 
21 days is what the CDC recommends. So they gave you doxycycline antibiotics. Yeah. And sounds like you were probably still the same. I actually couldn't walk for like three days. Wow. Because of like herxing and I didn't know what that was yet. Yeah. I literally went back to the doctor holding onto the wall outside, like holding onto buildings because I couldn't walk straight. Like literally I would just like, I was like leaning over. Wow. And, then and she now was we're like, also in COVID territory. So you're putting yourself at risk to do that anyway. Yeah, pretty much. And she's like, I don't know why you're still like this. <laughs> oh, man. I was like, why would two weeks of antibiotics fix a symptom I've had for 10, 10 years? years? Yeah. So what was the st- next step after that? What happened beyond that? How did you find resources? And, and what does the current treatment look like? So she said, you have to go back to the neurologist. And at this point, I'm like, well, she gave me an answer. So I guess she's sending me in the right direction. And I went to two different types of neurologists. It was one, I guess, one standard neurologist and one was a neurological ENT. They did absolutely nothing. And at that point, I was in a support group online for migraines. And the girl who was in that support group, we used to work together when I first got my headaches, well, that pain. And she said, why don't, and I told her, I said, yeah, I tested positive for a Lyme disease. And she was like, oh, shit. And I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm scared now because <laughs> I didn't know anything about it or like I had no idea. And every person I told was like, oh, my mom had that. Like, you'll be like fine six weeks. And I'm like, OK, cool. So I was hearing different things. And she said, no, it's no, no, it's bad. It's bad. And then she's yeah. like, maybe you can find a support group for Lyme disease. And I was like, duh. So I looked up one on Facebook and then I joined. And that's when like the answers started rolling in. Mm. So you got more answers from patients. Yeah, Facebook. She said, they were like, girl, you are herxing. And I'm like, what the hell is that? And then they told me what it was. And I'm like, everything makes sense now. (laughs) Like I was like piecing everything together like a puzzle. Well, the stuff you could remember too. Yeah. Like I was like, I remember when things used to darken out in my eyes when I was like on the subway. Mm. and I would kind of I would just like fall asleep everywhere it kind of felt like I had like narcolepsy right well and this is the thing is that Lyme disease we know it as the great imitator and we know that it can mimic over 300 different symptoms of other diagnosable illnesses so it's like of course you had symptoms of fibromyalgia and probably narcolepsy and something connected to migraine or something neurological I mean like it all yeah as you say the puzzle pieces fit yeah they said and then one doctor finally told me, no, you don't have migraines. You have occipital neuralgia. Mm. Like the, the nerves in the back of my head were swollen, like inflamed. And I actually had brain swelling. Oh my God. So that pulsing I felt was actually my brain hitting my skull. <gasps> yeah. So they finally oh. gave me medicine this January to calm that down. So like that, I can do the antibiotics and not have to lay in my bed for like three months. Something like anti-inflammatory for that? Yeah, it's actually what they give people with um, Tourette's and epilepsy. I was going to say, yeah. Wow. So is that like a long-term medication that you have to stay on? Or it's Mm-mm. this is the first time you've had relief from that symptom in a decade? Yeah, so I'm treating with Gemsec in DC. And they're like, stand, like the way they do it, treatment is they try, if you're so, when I went to their office, they were like, you're too sick for us to treat you currently. Wow. Because my gut was like, I was bent over, like in the room. And I was like, I can't eat anything. I like my 
stomach was so swollen. It looked like I was ready to have a baby. And people were like, oh my God, are you pregnant? And I was like, well, actually, I don't even have a cycle. Like I'm premenopausal at 30. And people would just obviously get really uncomfortable, but I was tired of the pregnancy question. And I was like, um, when I went there, they said, you're too sick. We have to like stabilize your gut and figure out how we can treat that pain that you have. And they figured out how to treat that in like four weeks. Wow. And you had to wait 10 years for that. And are they an integrative medicine practice? Mm, no, I mean, they, they use both. Okay. So Dr. Jemsek, he's, he's a doctor. They're all, and he has a bunch of PAs who assist him, who they've trained under him. So they give you like different, um, what is it like cocktails of like sure. medications. And I tried one, it did, it helped for a little while, but it came back. So they tried this one. And after like a few days, I was like, oh my God, it's gone. Like the sensation is gone. I was like in tears on the phone. I was like, no, you don't understand. Yeah. It's been more than 10 years. Like mm. I, she was like, oh my God, I'm so happy. Like they were the first people that took me seriously. Like they sit down and actually listen and they want to know your whole history from like birth <laughs> until right now. And they look at your whole body, your everything. They want to know everything. And then they found out that the stomach pain was actually because my gallbladder is no longer working. So how do they treat that? I have to get it removed next month. Wow. So this is so yeah. chronic that you're losing organs. Yeah. She was like, we don't really just want to like start removing all your organs, <laughs> but she's like, it doesn't work at all. I did like a test and I went to the surgeon last week and he's like, yeah, your gallbladder is no longer doing anything. So you might as well just take it out. And That's I was like, kind of a big deal. I was like, I have to do what? He's like, so we'll blow up your stomach and then we'll stick these rods in it. And then it just comes out. And I'm like, Mm, that doesn't sound like a good time, but okay. And are they planning to replace any of the enzymes that are produced in the gallbladder or the processes that are going on in the gallbladder with something else? Um, we're not there yet because <laughs> I didn't like schedule the surgery, but um, once it's scheduled, then I have to let them know in DC and then they kind of just give me, um, I guess, something else to do. But I'm already on like a whole bunch of supplements to kind of like replace and help that at the moment. So I haven't had wow. any stomach aches or headaches in like, say like seven weeks, maybe. Now here's a question. It sounds like they're sort of pinpointing the different areas of your body where you're having issues and, and treating in silos, but in order to look at the whole picture, right? Yeah. So is the idea here that as they continue to go through these areas of your body, where you're experiencing symptoms that they will eventually help you completely rid your body of Lyme? That's the idea. So yeah, you go in and they literally treat every symptom separately for you to at least feel like you have some quality of life. And then you do the treatment because they want you to be strong enough to do the treatment, not just give you, because imagine if they would have just given me antibiotics, I would have been even worse because like my gallbladder wasn't pumping anything. So it was like, well, I literally had like a whole bunch of like bile like in my stomach. Yeah, that was probably retoxifying your system. Yeah. So like was I was, I was turning yellow. Like I have pictures and my skin, I mean, like obviously I'm black, but like, like you could tell, like I had a weird coat of like yellow skin, like a jaundice. Yeah. And my eyes were super droopy. And one day I woke up and like half of my face was like drooping a little bit. Like my mouth. Like a Bell's palsy type of thing. Yeah. And one of my best friends has Bell's palsy. She had it super severe 
So I was like, oh my God, I called her. I was like, oh my God, is Bell's like I have Bell's palsy too? Like, like what the hell? I have everything. Like I literally felt like I was like, I have every disease. <laughs> Cause yeah. it would just happen. It was like a roller coaster. I would be okay. And then all of a sudden I'd have a million things wrong. And I'm like, I don't, I don't get this. That well, that's partially the Herx, but it's also Lyme <laughs> disease. That's just the nature of it. So do you feel like you're on the road to recovery now? I do, honestly. Like, I feel like after seeing them, like, I feel like I will never go back to another doctor because once you're mm-hmm. like, I guess, I don't want to say cured. I don't like in remission, I guess <laughs> you see them once a year just to make sure you're doing all right. Um, mm. So I feel like I would just be like, I'll just always call them <laughs> when I'm sick. Well, and I'm curious as well. You mentioned that they're in DC. So you're traveling to DC to see these doctors. I imagine they're not covered by your insurance. No. So how in the hell are you making all of that work between the traveling, the, the price of healthcare, you know, like all of these factors, how is that affecting your quality of life outside of your health? So the first appointment you have to go in person. Um, My last two appointments have been like um, over phone or video. Um, once I do the surgery and I'm on an antibiotic treatment, then they want to see me once again, but you don't have to go every time because majority of their patients come from out of town. Mm. Um, but at that, when I went the first time I was so desperate, like my friend, I called one of my friends and I was like, I, I can't do this. And he's like, I got you. I'll drive you. He's like, but I have my daughter. So she has to come too. So it was like a, like a friend. Yeah. They were like, okay, sure. And he like walked me to the door and I was like, okay, I'll see you later. Um, and then I finally, like, even though when I left, I felt so crappy. I was like, oh my God, finally, like somebody's going to do something. Um, yeah. Also, yeah, it is the price. I wouldn't be able to go if I didn't have my mom. Mm. Like there's no way in hell. I mean, my first appointment was $900. Right. I mean, this is typically what we hear, you know, people are like, how the hell am I going to afford it? Obviously you're leaning on family for support. Um, you know, I-, I was talking to someone the other day who thinks they might have Lyme disease and was like, how the hell will I afford this treatment? And it's like so many Lyme patients in particular end up in this situation where some of them don't necessarily even have that support, do they, you know? And um, I know that a lot of Lyme focused uh organizations, charitable organizations can help patients raise funds for these kinds of things as well, which is important for people listening to know. But um, I mean, it sounds like you were really lucky to be able to sort of go there and be able to begin to explore this, this. Yeah. I mean, I often say like, I'm privileged to have like my mom be able to help me because if not, I feel like I would have died. Like, I feel like I would have been dead already. Yeah. Because when I got married, I was like, I feel like I don't have much time left. Like, I'm not sure what's happening. And I I don't think I have much time left. Wow. I mean, let's talk about those relationships because I'm wondering what it's looked like for you as you've learned to step up as an advocate for yourself, right? Like, it it took you 10 years to to yell at the doctors (laughs) at Mount Sinai, right? And um, it sounds like you put up with a lot of shit before then because you were confused and you didn't know, how could you have known? But I'm curious to know, you know, who's stepped up for you. It sounds like you've had friends step up and family step up and 
what's that looked like in terms of the impact on these relationships? What did it look like in your marriage? Yeah. So, I mean, um, my mom at one point, I could see the anxiety. Like she was starting to call me like every second. How are you feeling? She would FaceTime me on purpose to see how my face looked. Cause then she could be like, you look, you look like shit. Like, I know you feel terrible right now. You've been sleeping all weekend. Like you're 27. Why are you sleeping all weekend? Like, yeah. You used, and it's supposed used, to be the other way around. We're supposed to take care of that. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I was like, when I got, when I went to college, I was like, so I'm studying film and video. <laughs> I'm going to go to Hollywood. I'm going to make millions of dollars. My mom's never going to have to work another day in her life. <laughs> and I was like, now I have no job. Yeah. And well, Cause you were also a professional dancer, weren't you? Yeah. I was on a salsa company. Like we used to perform. We went on road trips for performances and we so this was your livelihood yeah. and your career that you also lost to this disease. Yeah. Since I had that sensation in my head. And if you watch like Latin dancing, it's a lot of spinning. It's a lot of sometimes throwing you in the air. Like I need balance and coordination. And I lost that. Even now I, it's I've, obviously it's a little still off. Um, like I definitely wouldn't be able to perform right now, but um, yeah, I definitely, that, that was a big one for me that like, um, contributed to like really bad depression because I danced since I was nine. Yeah. So I was, and I imagine I it's also a cultural, there. like it's a cultural connection too. Right. Especially to something yeah. like salsa. So like, yeah. that's a part of your heritage. It's also what you're, you were doing creatively, but to make a living and all of these things were lost. Yeah. So, and then from dancing, I got into like some fashion modeling um, and then I went to school for film and video because like, I like, you know, like that industry, I like to write, like, I didn't want to be like a dancer. Like that wasn't like my goal. I wanted to always be a writer. Um, but dancing, I mean, like dancing was so important to me. Like that's the only reason I got good grades mm. <laughs> because if I didn't get good grades, I couldn't go to dance school. Right. So I literally was in the studio like five days a week. And then on the weekends, we would have shows. And I was the baby of the group. So everyone took care of me. Like, they would pay for me to eat and, like, pay for me, whatever. Like, I didn't have to do a thing. Literally, I was, like, the diva of the group. (laughs) (laughs) But it gave you a community. Yeah, like, I loved them. My mom was like, you can go out only with them because I know them and I trust them. Like, going out with, like, 23-year-olds and I'm, like, 15. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's a huge turnaround to sort of... To, to lose the ability to participate in those activities with these people who have an important influence in your life. Yeah, it definitely was um, a change. And then when people noticed, like I wasn't around, they were like, what's going on? What, like, where are you? And there were times like, you know, like the, the roller coaster, right? Because there's times where you feel decent. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to go out and like see everyone. And they're like, where have you been? And I'm like, oh, I was sick for a while. Like, I didn't even know really what I meant by that. <laughs> I was like, mm, just some stuff going on. And then I'd have another six months where like nobody saw my face. And then I come back. It was just like, I would peek in and out. So does that I mean guess that I've, those friendships still exist or have they sort of disappeared because people didn't get it and you didn't get it? None of them exist, actually. I have two friends from when that started. Um, yeah. One is the one that brought me to the doctor and another friend that I have from, we actually met at a, casting call I was standing behind her like for like a runway audition and I was like hey girl I like your hair and she was like oh my god thanks and then like we went out to eat 
<laughs> like she's been my friend since then. And mm. the other day I saw her after not seeing her for a year because of COVID. And like I hugged her and I was like, oh my God, I'm so happy to see you. And she was like, back then, like, I didn't know like what to do for you. Like, I didn't know how to help you. Like, I didn't know we were going out one day and I had a, like a crazy panic attack in her house. We were, both, we were just going out like to like a club, you know, we were like 21. And I literally went into full panic mode. I was like, I can't, I can't go anywhere. Like I have to go home. Like, and it was so weird. I started crying and like shaking and she's like, what's happening. And like everybody like crowded around me. And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know what's happening. Like I was never, never anxious or nervous. Like you ask any of my friends, they were like, you ask my dad. He's like, Riza does anything. She's like a daredevil. Like you tell me, let's go skydiving. I'll probably be like, yeah, I'm scared but let's do it. (laughs) Like I'm one of those Mm. people. Like, and everything started to scare me. Like just every little thing. I was always nervous. It's a huge turnaround. Yeah. Like I felt like a completely different person. Um, in terms of my marriage, uh, (laughs) that's a, that's a tricky one because he ended up being abusive. Oh man. Not physically, but emotionally. So I'm currently like we're currently not together because I felt like he was actually making me worse. Do you think that he might have singled you out because you were sick? At the beginning, no, because I didn't really talk about it like that. We connected because of like talking about history of depression. So I think he singled me out in that aspect, but I was very vocal about it because I went to therapy for almost almost 10 years I went for like eight years to my therapist and he saw me as like this person who was very outspoken about it and I always talked about my experience in therapy because most people of color and black people don't have access to it so I always posted online like my therapist said this and we need to do this and this is how we work on these certain things because I said I share it because if you can't afford it then I can at least give you like the tips that she shares with me. Um, At the time I was still under my dad's insurance because of like Obama extended it. So my dad is in a union. So has like the most amazing insurance. insurance Yeah. (laughs) It's also another reason why I never called out my doctors too, because I thought I had like the best care in the world. I feel like New Yorkers were like that. There's something about also like being in New York and being like, obviously we have the best doctors. Why would I ever question them? Where would I go? That's better than here. Right. Yeah. People come Where else could you possibly go? Yeah. So I was like, my dad is a union worker. Like, you know, like all like ridiculous. No, but I I think that's really true. And I think that's there, there is a mindset when it comes to medicine in a place like New York. I mean, I had unlimited mental health visits, unlimited, like, that's pretty unheard of. That's pretty amazing. It's literally unheard. I would go twice a week for like years. If I could go four times, I would win like four or five times a week if I had the schedule to open it. Yeah. But yeah, like with the marriage, um, uh, he like, I don't know, it, it went from, it was like day and night, like super concerned to, uh, oh, you're in the hospital. Okay. I hope you feel better soon. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, this isn't, this wasn't what I signed up for. Like, and I had already like felt like I've been through so much. I kind of just walked away from it. Like I can't have another stressor yeah. in my life. So this isn't going to work. Well, that's sort of a blessing that you were able to walk away that easily. It, yeah. Like make that detachment. Yeah. I was absolutely done. Like I was at a point where I couldn't walk up the stairs. 
and we lived in a walk-up, obviously, right? Mm. And I was like, yeah, I just started packing and now I'm at my mom's house. Right. So you've had people like your mom and your friends while these groups that were once larger have dwindled. Right. There are also a few individuals who have stepped up for you and stepped into that advocacy space for you while few and far between, there's still a couple, it sounds like. Yeah. Instrumental in your healing. Do you feel like you learned to advocate for yourself throughout this process too? Yeah, definitely. Um, I feel like I was a little too, what's the word? Like lax, like, yeah, like too relaxed with people. Like, but I mean, when you're a kid, like people put doctors on like this pedestal. It's like, they know everything, don't they? I mean, they went to school for like 12 years. Like, why wouldn't they know what's wrong with me? And I had them up there. Like I wanted to be a doctor when I was a kid. I wanted to be a vet. So I was like, I'm going to go to medical school. And like these people, I mean, (laughs) you put MD on your license plate and everybody's like, Ooh, or you say like you're, you enter a space and you're just regular, but then you say, Oh no, I'm an MD. And like, everybody is like praising you. So I thought I wouldn't have to fight for an answer. I thought it was just their job to fix it. Like not just put a bandaid on it. And I feel like that's all they do now that I've been part of this community. I feel like all they do is put a bandaid on it. You're just like a customer, literally. Mm. You're, we're literally customers. They're not, I feel like, I don't know. I just feel like the medical community here, they just, not, I don't know if it's that they don't care or that they're just controlled by like insurance companies and other things. Like there's a whole, there's a whole part. There's like a whole, mm. what's the word? A, sorry, I forget words a lot too. No, no, that's um, all right. Brain fog is real. Um, yeah, there's there's layers to it. Yeah. My mom works in healthcare. So I know how it works from like the top down in terms of like what people do for billing. Cause my mom does billing and coding and she runs a clinic. So I know how, like, that's also another thing. <laughs> Sorry. I was keep like, going. This is great. <laughs> my mom does billing and coding. Right. When I went to my, uh, Oh my God, this happened. <laughs> like the consultation for my surgery. Um, I'm still under my husband's insurance. So they were like, which is oh. like, hello triggers. Okay. Yeah, it is. Right. But at the same time I'm unemployed, so he has to keep me there. Okay. So at least he's paying, he's paying for something, right? Like if I have yep. to have him around, at least it's because I have health insurance. Um, they were like, your health insurance isn't showing as primary. I'm like, okay, cool. Yeah. I did have another insurance. It's terminated. This is my primary. Just call them. They'll tell you it's my primary. They were like, no, you're self-pay. I'm like, oh God, here we go again. <laughs> like I have mm-hmm. to fight with this now. Like I'm like the extra hoops you have to jump through as a right. patient who's already chronically ill. Right. I'm like, I'm just do. I'm just here for you to pull out an organ. Like that's all you got to <laughs> tell me is when we're doing it. Like, yeah. And she's like, well, you can talk to the billing team. I'm like, cool. I'll talk to the billing team. Like I'm always ready to fight now. At this doctor. So yeah. they're like, no, we don't see. I'm like, there's two patients in here. You can call United and just ask them. I'm like, I literally have the insurance card. I'm, it shows all my information. Like an hour later, I'm like, just swipe my card and I'll get the refund. I'll just submit it to the insurance company. I paid $150 for them to tell me, do you know where your gallbladder is? I'm like, I actually oh I do God. know where it is. I'm like, wow. being that it's hurt me for so long, I'm pretty sure I know where it is. He's like, and then he points to like the diagram as if I don't mm-hmm. know where like organs are in my body. And then he was, he was kind of like a smart ass. And I'm just like, whatever, dude. Just be a good surgeon. Right. I'm like, just don't kill me on the table. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, honestly, I'm only here because you're black. And I feel like I won't be 
I won't die on the table. Mm. So I'm not going to give you an attitude. <laughs> sure. So I was like, I'm just going to smile. Well, not even smile because I had a mask. <laughs> but I was like, cool, I'll be nice to you, I guess. And then I get home and I told my mom what happened with the insurance thing. She calls and all of a sudden they were like, oh, sorry, it was a misunderstanding because my mom used like billing and coding terminology. And I'm like, the system is that complex that a patient requires a professional to step in on their behalf in order to have right be done. That's a problem, isn't it? That's a big problem because people who don't have that, who don't know anything about that terminology or how anything works, Mm. people will like, they like treat you like you're like a fool, literally. Is there anything good about the healthcare system, the way it's currently designed for patients (laughs) like you, especially? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, guys, I want to talk about coaching. I recently connected with an awesome executive and life coach, and her name is Jenna Chieko, a graduate of Dr. Martha Beck's program with a background in psychology and law. She's a former tech general counsel and chief of staff who also worked for the Obama administration. Jenna inspires clients to step into their best lives by helping them access their inner strengths, clear the cobwebs holding them back, and cultivate a dream big growth mindset. She is also a life Sherpa for navigating change. You know who I know who has big dreams and is navigating massive changes now more than ever with coronavirus? We Spoonies. Jenna works virtually and she's offering 10% off to new clients who enroll and mention code INVISIBLE. Her rates are reasonable and she's dedicated to help us rise to the top. Go to jennachieco.com, that's G-E-N-A-C-H-I-E-C-O.com for more. I think it has to just be like, completely destroyed and rebuilt. Yeah. I don't think there's anything good about it right now at all. Mm. Yeah. That's a, I mean, that's something we hear a lot on the show. I, I'm wondering as well, like at this point, what is a typical day looking like for you? I mean, is there such a thing as a typical day in the life of Risa? Mm, I mean, the last year has been different for me because I'm not working. I mean, I had orig- essentially lost my job due to COVID. Um, but once I got laid off, I was like, well, I guess this is time to figure out how I get better because I've been working, you know, since I was, you know, a teenager. So I'm like, yeah. okay, this is my time to figure it out. Um, since I've been feeling better, I've actually been able to exercise again because I had gained in all those years. I gained about like 50 pounds. Um, even when I was working out, I was still gaining because I had like all that crap in my stomach. Um, And then I was diagnosed with PCOS also because um, I have cysts on my ovaries and I like don't get a cycle also, but I had went to, I guess like a holistic doctor also. And she was like, I feel like those things are kind of tied together because doctors Mm -hmm. were like, no, it's separate. And she's like, "Mm." in terms of timing and like how things went for you, it has to, it's tied together because as I've been feeling better, it kind of has come back like my cycle. Um, but that's still like confusing for me. But it's also a bunch of additional diagnoses that have likely been triggered by Lyme. Right. That, I mean, also affecting your fertility at an age when probably a lot of your friends are getting married and having babies. Yeah. When they told me they were like, yeah, so, um, it's consistent. Like you have polycystic ovaries and like, I was like, okay, what? Um, and he's like, you know, when you're ready to have a baby, just let us know. and We'll give you like some fertility medication. Yeah. I was like, wait, so you're telling me I can't have children? I'm, I was like, I'm hold on. Like, 
That's a lot of news to handle. <laughs> I was like, not that I want them right now, but I wasn't aware that that would be a problem. I also, I, I mean, as someone who has like personally done their own research, cause I've looked into the whole fertility thing, right. You know, the way that doctors are like, it's fine. We'll give you fertility drugs. It's not that simple. Is it? Right. <laughs> it's not as simple as like, we give you fertility drugs. You have live baby. Um, and I think those who've been through that experience, been through the dealing with fertility, IVF, things like that, um, are familiar, but, um, you know, that, that experiences this emotional and, and also this central to our beings are sort of written off as don't worry when the time comes, we'll give you drugs. Like it's an easy thing to fix when that's not at all the case, particularly if you're someone who has a condition like PCOS. Oh no. So, I mean, I have days where like, I'm really tired and like, I can't do anything else. Um, but then I have days where like, I can lift weights. So I kind of just go with the flow at this point. It sounds like you're, be, you're, you're celebrating the good days. You're, you're taking control. Yeah. Of them. When I have a good day, like I make sure I, like I use it. Um, because I, I really do like working out. Like I used to use it when my mood was low and I would just be like, okay, got to get these endorphins flowing. Like I need to feel better. So when I do, you know, when I have good days, I do work out or like, even if it's just like stretching or anything, like just something to get my body moving. Hmm. I mean, I guess it reminds me of like dancing too. Yeah. So sometimes I post videos like dancing on my Instagram. That's great. So yeah. That's celebrating like, the good days is important, but also knowing that like some days are going to be days that you spend in bed. Right. And then sometimes you have the people that are like, well, I mean, you're great now mm-hmm. because I had like, I posted like a video of 60 seconds of me dancing. I'm like, <laughs> Mm, I actually took a three hour nap after that video. Yeah. Because I literally was about to like fall over, but thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you for letting me know like that you don't believe anything I say. Right. Well, uh, speaking of which, I mean, everything we're talking about is so entirely invisible, right? Like you're dealing with multiple diagnoses associated with the Lyme, multiple treatments, you know, um, you said early on in the interview that you must have gone through at least 50 doctors before you even got your diagnosis. You were chronically ill for 10 plus years. What about those situations where you have been confronted either by friends or family or by these practitioners and forced to justify the existence of your diagnosis to people who just didn't get it because they couldn't see it? How has that played out for you? What have those situations manifested into? It's tough because I've always hidden everything very well. Like so many people now that they've seen what happened and I, and I shared pictures or videos of like things and how I looked. Um, I get, I don't know, I get a strange reaction. Like people are like, they don't really know what to do. Like they're always confused. Like, Oh, I hope you feel better soon. And I'm like, you've been telling me that for 11 years. Like, you don't need to say that anymore. I literally tell people, you don't need to tell me, like, to feel better soon. Like, it's okay. Because I may never feel better soon. And if so, that's all you have to contribute to this conversation, then. Right. I don't I don't need that. Like, yeah. it's really aggravating. And, like, my blood pressure rises when, like, people do it. Because I'm like, what is it that you don't understand? Like, I will literally, I'll explain it to you. Because I get it that it's confusing. Because before knowing all this, I probably was the same way, right? <laughs> like, so a lot of people told me, oh my God, like at your wedding, you looked so happy and 
you looked fine. And I was like, the fact that you thought I looked happy shows we're not that close. Because my best friend who was standing there, who was my um, maid of honor, she kept making eye contact with me like, are you good? Like, she knew I was not okay. Mm. My mom knew I was not okay also. My dad the other day told me that he was in denial. Like, he just couldn't accept it. And I literally told them, I said, guys, I got married. Obviously, because, like, I wanted to get married. But because I thought my time was, like, almost up. And Mm. I was like, well, if I'm going to die, at least I'll have, like, a wedding. You know, like, every girl wants to have a wedding. (laughs) And they just looked at me like, oh, I didn't realize it was that severe. And when I when I talk like that, people get very uncomfortable. And I'm like, listen, that was the reality of it. Like, I know yeah. how, you, like I said, the way it's, I don't get it because like, I don't want to compare. Like, I don't like to do that. But like, if you see someone with cancer, it's like, you get all of this, right? You get so much attention and people start GoFundMes for you. And like, people are always there. Like, they're very like attentive, right? But for this... I could count on one hand the people who've really been like an anchor for me. Yeah. And I have a hard time sometimes with the people who kind of like peek in and out. Cause mm-hmm. I'm like, you're, you're my family, but I need you to you be don't, you don't, Yeah. You don't have that closeness that like other people have for me or with yeah. me. And they're, you know, especially with like Latino community, <laughs> it's very religious so they're like it's in god's hands and i'm like you know what no actually it's not and i don't want to get into like a religious conversation but i'm like if that was the case then i think i would have been better by now i hope i don't know like why were you sick for 10 years they keep telling me like it's in his hands and i'm like i I mean and then i get like really like aggressive about it and they're like no no you'll be fine you'll be fine and i'm like Hmm. I think you're just saying that to make yourself feel more comfortable. Well, it's also the thoughts and prayers thing, right? Like that's really oh, nice that gosh. your thoughts are in the right place, but also that's not going to do shit for me. Right. I need medical treatment. That's going to cost thousands of dollars. And I've been sick for 10 years. Like, yeah. Right. So <laughs> I need more than thoughts and prayers at this point. Like I need your money and your time and your energy. And if you don't have those things to give, then I don't need you. Right. Like, I'd rather just be here with like my two friends. (laughs) Yeah. Well, the two friends who are good to you are better than 20 who don't know how to handle it. Are useless. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. What about, you know, you've touched on these experiences as a woman of color in the healthcare system and among friends and family. And I'm wondering about experiences of both privilege and prejudice, both of which you've mentioned, right? Um, particularly as it regards the way in which you present, you're a woman of color walking into these appointments with doctors. You chose a black surgeon for your gallbladder surgery for that very reason. How do you think your identity has affected your treatment? You know, do you think that being a woman of color in the system is part of why it took you 10 years to get diagnosed? And do you see your circumstances maybe being different if you presented differently, if you were a white woman walking into the system, if you were a man walking into the system? What do you think about all that? So I'm going to like have like different, like different. It was a lot of questions in one. (laughs) Um, So I had told some, I had posted like a status one day about um, racism in the medical community and I had a friend who asked have you seen a Spanish doctor now in New York Spanish just groups everybody who speaks the language so 
Well, yeah, what they mean is, have you seen a Spanish speaking doctor? But also, right. And I said, that's not really, that's inappropriate. I said, said, sweetie, that's white. Like ethnicity and race are two different things. So for me, I said, I'm black first. Like woman of color, I don't even identify as that because. My apologies for using the term. No, no, it's not even like, I don't mean to like make you feel like awkward or anything. Not at all. If you prefer to be called a black woman, then that's who you are. The issue is people of color who are not black are also racist towards black people. So I can see an Asian doctor. Doesn't mean he likes anybody who's black or an Indian doctor. I can even see a white Puerto Rican doctor. He could probably not give a shit about my whole life. Like racism in Puerto Rico is... That's a whole other story. Like racism in the Latino community, the worst. It's actually worse in the Latino community than it is like in the United States. When like I'd rather, I'm okay with like the dude with the Confederate flag because at least he's out and he's like, it's obvious, right? And the Latino community is very subtle. They're like, we don't see race blackie. And you're like, wait a minute. Excuse me? Yeah. Like you're like, hold on, (laughs) pause, rewind. So it's, it's tough because... Even in the doctors, like I can see somebody who's a different ethnicity or something, or I can see someone who's black and who's very classist. They're like, oh, you live where? In what neighborhood? Oh, I'm not from there. You know, it's very, they get very personal. I had a doc, I had a black doctor who told me you should become a doctor since you know so much about your illness. If they hadn't been sarcastic when they said that, they might've been making a good point. Right. And I said, um... He said, oh, you can make a lot of, he said, you can make a lot of bank, like a lot of money. And I was like, I don't know why you you use slang with me. Like we're friends. (laughs) I don't Mm -hmm. like that. And being that my mom paid a $900 deductible, like I need some better care. And I said, you know, maybe I will become a doctor, but I need you to help me get better so I can become a doctor. And I Mm -hmm. said, you know what? If I became a doctor, I'd be poor because I'd actually be helping patients. I never saw him again, obviously. Yeah, he never even checked on me to see if I if I felt better with what he gave me. Like he never mm-hmm. even I never heard back from them, which is very irresponsible. Right. So that's a tough thing with Lyme, right? Because talking to so many people, I there's so many people, black, white, Asian, Indian, like let's you know wherever they come from, it's been the same thing. So, but obviously being black, there's like an added layer because I've barely found anybody who's black in this community. I feel like I'm yeah. like the token, like black girl. I mean, truly. Because like people are like, oh my God, a black person who has like disease. And I found well, one and other all person. I see. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And she's on that's Instagram all- too. And I was like, when I found her, I was like, oh, I need you. Or like, yeah. In my life. <laughs> I mean, as a, as a patient advocate myself, when I have been following people and connecting to people usually through Instagram. That's how I meet most of the people who are on the show. The Lyme community to me is like, I'm like, is it all white people? Is it that on- doctors are only diagnosing white people? And that's nothing against the people who are living right. with Lyme. Like this right. is a serious disease, no matter what the color of your skin is. But, you know, it seems to me that for whatever reason, the medical community has responded to Lyme disease in the sense that they're like only white people go to the country and get bitten by ticks. Oh my God. Right. Like, is that, that, um, I was on another podcast (laughs) and when I did the interview the day before, like 
when he told me, oh, we're going to release it tomorrow, I told him, be prepared for like the comments you're going to get because mm. these people are going to go crazy because they ask a lot of questions about race and racism in the medical community. And people don't like talking about that. Well, welcome to my show where that's <laughs> all we do. <laughs> right. You know, like people get very angry, especially in the Lyme community because so many people have waited so long for a diagnosis. And then there's like mm. treatment is sometimes unattainable for most people. And the comments yeah. were, they were rough. Like I was already prepared for them, but I told them to be prepared because I don't think they realized what was going to happen. And the comments were like, I don't think there's, I don't think she has Lyme disease because like there's no ticks in the projects wow. or like black people live in urban neighborhoods. Like there's no way she could have been bitten. You already realize how racist that is, right, guys? Like, think about what you're saying. Right. And I was like, I've actually never lived in public housing. And there's nothing against living in public housing. And you just mentioned earlier that that you lived in North Jersey. Like, you're living near the woods. I grew up in Staten Island. Yeah. Like, um, what? Don't worry, I've been in nature. (laughs) Right. I was like, um, I'm Caribbean also, so... Yeah, but thank you for like, but there was it was great because there were people who were like fighting for me in the comments. That's good. Like you don't know her. Like that's mm-hmm. really racist. And I was like, I love also, that I have people who just go off and like fight for me instead of I just yeah. kind of sit back. <laughs> that's good though, and I, and I'm glad that there are people who are stepping up into that space. I mean, because that's the thing is like your Western blot is very positive. We know you have Lyme disease. We also know that you might not have gotten it from a tick. You could have gotten it from a mosquito. Anyone anywhere could get it from that. You could get it in any urban setting. You could get it in any rural setting. Like, I mean, it is just, it's everywhere. It's an epidemic and people don't understand that about Lyme. Right. And like my ANA was like super positive and they were like, "Mm, not exactly lupus. Uh, I'm like, okay. And I feel like most black people are probably diagnosed with lupus instead. Yeah. Because that's like such a common disease among black women. Hmm. And every time I hear another Black woman tell me, oh, yeah, I was diagnosed with lupus, I'm like... Just get a Lyme test before you make a final decision. Yeah, I'm like, so I don't want to act like I'm a doctor, but I kind of feel like one. I mean, Um, it's interesting because I'm training as a health coach. And everyone I talk to, I'm like, get a Lyme test. Everyone. Because it's just like, you don't even know if that's maybe the underlying thing that caused... If we're going to take a root cause approach and heal from the inside out... Get, I feel like it should be part of a physical. Yeah, absolutely. And when I, I when I saw how much, like, regular like a regular physical, even when they take like labs, mm-hmm. they they like the most basic labs. When I got lab work done at Gemsec, it was like a thick book. Like they couldn't. Yeah. They were like, we're trying to get every last drop of blood out of your body. Like there was so much, so yeah. much testing, and like yeah. my levels were so depleted. And I said funny how like my doctor said you're good to go like everything's great and sometimes it's as simple as being like oh look you're vitamin d deficient maybe if we supplement with some vitamin d it'll like hugely improve your fatigue that definitely did yeah that definitely helped yeah so the fact that they're being responsible and doing more comprehensive labs is excellent i mean it sounds like you're in good hands with them do you think that i mean you mentioned that like these people in the comments and after that other podcast you were on I i wonder if you were a white woman if you would be dealing with that shit oh no way like, yeah and i also like that the fact that the people who were answering those comments were white yeah <laughs> because 
coming from me, it just is going to be like, I'm just an aggressive, like angry black woman. And I also said on the podcast, that's why I never got angry at the doctor because I'm like, then I'm just going to say, I'm like some mad black woman who's like, you know, who's always mad because we're always mad. Right. This is, but I mean, I would be like, that's, that's the other thing is like, it's a trope that we hear about over and over again is the hysterical woman and the angry black woman. And they're very closely interlinked and you're damned if you do. And you're damned if you don't. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, that's a scary place to be when you've been sick for 10 years right? and trying not to lose your shit as well. Right. And also like at the beginning of my marriage, when we were like in the hospital, I would tell him, don't get hysterical. Like one, you're black. You're like six feet tall. People are scared of you. Former football player. Like you're going to get arrested. Just, just don't get aggressive. Like, just let me talk, please. Just stand there. (laughs) Like, yeah. I mean, that's, that as an additional layer of consideration when you're just trying to feel like a normal human being is it's got to be so frustrating. And I'm so sorry that you've had to go through those additional thought processes and deal with people who would only respond to your thoughtfulness, you know, when like, it's not down to you to be thoughtful right now. It's down to the people who are supposed to be taking care of you. Right. But you're absolutely right. This is how the system this is what systemic oppression looks like. This is what right. racism looks like. This is what, you know, misogyny looks like. Right. And I always told people, I said, I understood what white privilege was pretty early because my father's white. And I saw the, like, the dynamic of how people treated him versus my mother. So, like, if I had something, an issue at school I'd be like, oh, bring in dad. Because the minute yeah. people see him, they're like, oh, oh, I'm sorry. We'll, we'll get it handled right away. And then if I brought my mom, they'd be like, well, you know, Ms. Barrera, where? Well, you know, like they get like all aggressive about it. And I'm like, yep, mm-hmm. we're only bringing dad to school. So yeah. that like that's when I started seeing like, hmm, <laughs> OK. But it's crazy because it took me yeah. so long to piece that together in the doctor because I thought we were, you know, when I said about the insurance, I was like, oh, we're good to go. Like. I didn't see them as seeing me as like something different. I just saw them saying like, oh, she has really good insurance, like book her now, like, cause they're going to pay for everything. Yeah. But that's it, interesting. Cause that's like an experience of privilege that's separate right. from, yeah. And, and living between these two identities almost for you. Yeah. And it's crazy. Cause like my dad, I don't know if it's that he doesn't get it or he just doesn't, he doesn't want to get to. it. But he doesn't right. have to, does he? I'm like, I'm like, it doesn't matter to you like that you don't have to worry about that. Like, that's not something that, you know, like you think about. I'm like, you know, like one, one time I got pulled over with like my ex-boyfriend and they searched our car illegally and they asked us if we were legal in this country and if wow. we had ever murdered anybody and they asked us to step out of the vehicle and we didn't even do anything. It was just them oh, being right, annoying. Sorry. And I was like... And then he's like, well, you know, those are just stupid cops. And I was like, uh, I mean, we could have been killed. Like, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, it's like a, it's a t- tough conversation. It's even tougher. Well, it's living it's between a parent. Yeah. Because, right. Because it's like, why did you get it? <laughs> like people ask you, why mm-hmm. do you have a black daughter all the time? So you, as if it's anyone's right. Business. And they're like, are you adopted? Like, even if I was adopted, what difference does it make? You're still my mm-hmm. parent. Right. Because that's still your parents. Yeah. <laughs> like, 
And the fact that these experiences then intersect with your own very personal experiences in the healthcare system too. It's like you're having these experiences within and outside of a system that for a decade didn't serve you. And, and that actually you've had to work outside of because you've had to go and work with doctors who are not taking insurance because they're the only ones who'll take you seriously because they've divested from the system, you know, like that shows us what's wrong with the system. It also shows us what's wrong with the larger picture here, but then also in our personal relationships. And I mean, it is multi-systemic and and very layered, especially for you having connections to these different worlds in various iterations. Like that's gotta be endlessly frustrating and, and like, and, and sad. Yeah. Because it feels like you're always like having to prove something like, Oh, I got to prove I'm this. I got to prove I'm that. Like I have to prove I'm this ethnicity. Like people do that a lot too. They're like Puerto Rican, like you're too black to be Puerto Rican. And I'm like, do I have to explain history and like slavery and how that worked out here? And then it's Mm -hmm. like, it's just all over. It's just everywhere all the time. Like at every moment, there's never a break. That's what it is too. It's like, well, then you got to prove that you're sick. Like, I mean, what the hell? Are you serious? Would you, would you say that these issues of inequality, at least in the healthcare system, you know, from a gender and race perspective in particular, are their own public health crisis? Oh, for sure. Um, Because I feel like you always see like, even now with like COVID, it's like, oh, you know, African-American community is affected more. And, you know, I'm like, well, I mean, obviously, like, well, let's get into why that's actually happening. They're not just, black people don't just have more diseases. <laughs> like, I'm like, yeah, we yeah. can get into who bought diseases where, right? Mm-hmm. Historically. Yeah. <laughs> like, but we can also get into <laughs> who's being treated when. Right. Like. <laughs> How, and who's being crisis, used in research like, studies? And do these people have yeah. access to better jobs and healthcare and housing? I mean, I'm like we we got to start at the top. We can't just say like black people have more diseases or black people have more like hypertension or you know like mm-hmm. what? <laughs> I think it, in a way like everything ties into capitalism for us, right? right. Like there's like this idea of trickle down ec- economics, and what we need to do is turn the whole thing upside <laughs> right. down and trickle right. it up instead, right? Like if we did trickle up and looked at the economic situations and how capitalism has played into that and then how it expands into all these other, because unfortunately we live in a system wherein that denotes one's value. Yep. And when we've created systems that keep certain people in, in oppressed conditions, yep. what do you expect? Yeah. Yeah. That's, I commend you for, finding a way to gracefully walk the walk thanks, and like share about what you're going through. I mean, I'm curious as well, what made you want to share? Like, was it because you didn't see anyone else like you in the community? Yeah. I was like, why am I like the one person? You know what happened too? I did, I did a podcast and then I got like so many people like asking me to talk. And I was like, have you never have Am I like the first black person diagnosed with Lyme disease? Yeah, for a lot of people you are. (laughs) And I was like being asked, like my email was like flooded. And then I started a blog and I got like all these followers. And I was like, you care what I have to say? Like, it was so like. That's got to be validating though, right? Yeah, I was like, oh my God, you really care about like what the hell I'm talking about? That's crazy. (laughs) That's because you're not alone. I think part of it is also that like you were isolated for so long in your circumstances and when you start sharing publicly, people start going, hey, hang on. 
I think right. I'm with you. Yeah. And then like other people started, like I found like some like indigenous people and like Asian people. And I'm like, okay, so they're out there somewhere. <laughs> like there's a, there's a, mm. a group. Um, and then I got a lot of people just like asking me like, what did you do? Or like, how do you live? <laughs> like, like, what are you Tough doing? Question. What is your life about? Like, yeah. just, like asking me anything, like random emails about anything or like, I think my sister has this, you know, like now what? And I'm like, girl, I wish I knew what the I answer know. to that question was. Like, well, so that's hard too. Me, like super specific. And I'm like, girl, I'm still figuring this out. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the tough thing, isn't it? Is like you start speaking out and you want to be able, you do it to help people. Right. But you also want to be able to remind people that like everyone's individual, not everyone's <laughs> going to be able to take the same approach to different things, you know, like that is a really tough one. And that's what doctors should be answering those questions. Right. But right. <laughs> when it comes to Lyme disease, there aren't, there are few and far between when it comes to LLMDs, these Lyme literate doctors yeah. who can actually look at someone from a multi-systemic perspective, do the right labs, you know, um, and yeah. fully support. And that again, is often people who've divested mostly mindfully from the insurance system because it all comes back to the money flow, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. What about, I would love as we sort of like, first of all, I want to thank you for sharing everything that you've shared. I mean, this is such oh, an yeah, incredibly, totally. oh, I mean, it's such an incredibly personal conversation to have and one that's <laughs> potentially very triggering. Um, and, you know, I'm really truly, truly honored that you are holding space for this conversation, not just for your followers, but also for the people who are listening to this show, you know, like this yeah. is extremely meaningful to me. And I know oh, to the people who are tuning in. And I wondered as we sort of fly into the tail end of <laughs> this chat, if you have any tips that you could offer, you know, speaking of people writing you with a million questions, <laughs> what would be like, if you could distill your top three tips for people who are living through their own chronic health concerns, Lyme disease or otherwise, but, you know, particularly invisible stuff, right. what would your top three pieces of advice be to your fellow Spoonies out there? Um, I would say one, find a support group because most people get more answers there than they ever do seeing numerous doctors. I feel like the support groups have really like changed my life when I found like a community that's even like when you have a bad day, it's like, well, like, you know, at least you, you'll find people that understand. Even when you have like an advocate or family or friends who are there for you, it's different, right? Because they can only understand so much, right? So you want to find a community that knows exactly what the hell you're talking about. Two, I would say, I always say this, like I say it all the time. I already said it, but fibromyalgia is not a diagnosis. It's a symptom. I will say that till the day I die. That is not a disease. You're not just in pain. Like, how, how does that make sense? Yeah. So you're just going to hurt for every, every day of the rest of your life. You're just going to be in pain. No, no. Don't like. In some ways, you could say the same right. with depression, right? Like, if a doctor's writing you off as depressed. You're just sad. Okay, great. Like, no, no, no. And just no. Like, mm. even, even Dig my deeper. LMD was like, fibromyalgia is not a diagnosis. It's not. Wow. There's no way. Like. Because now yeah. I don't even have fibromyalgia. Well, that's right. a positive that you're <laughs> right. not in pain anymore. So that's a huge, huge sea yeah. change for you. Um, the third one, 
I guess would be like don't settle like because I settled for so long just like complacent they're like sure they're right Mm -hmm. like you know yourself nobody knows you more than you do so yeah like I guess those would be a thing. Keep searching, yeah. keep digging. And it sounds like get second opinions, get third get, opinions, get fourth yeah, opinions get if you need to. Yeah, get 100 opinions if you have to. Yeah, absolutely. Because you're going to find somebody who knows what they're talking about. And you did. Yeah. <laughs> and like sometimes, yeah, it does take 10 years, but hopefully the more we talk about it, the faster people will find directions. Right. And then maybe you can have like a good next 30 years, finally, right? Like Yeah. Absolutely. And I know we've talked about a lot of downers today, right? Like there, there've been a few bright spots in this conversation, but there's been, a, it's, it's a lot of like Lyme is a very serious disease and this shit is fucked up. But I, I'm wondering if you could share three things that give you unbridled joy that, you know, you've obviously had to make changes in your life to accommodate your, your diagnosis and treatment, yeah. but what are three things that you are absolutely not willing to compromise on in your life? And these could be like comfort activities when you're flaring hard or, you know, indulgences, just anything that you turn to when you want to light yourself up. Where does Risa go? Salsa. Music, not the tip. Um, My cat. (laughs) She's been around. She has not made an appearance. funny, right? She's actually on my bed right now, but I'm surprised she hasn't. (laughs) made noise I know maybe it's because of that essential oil thing she said <laughs> um, <laughs> maybe it's just because she's like I know mommy's doing something serious <laughs> like she's been with me through a lot a lot yeah. and when I'm flaring yeah. she stays there like mm-hmm. she knows I'm like I'm not know. like she knows she used to when I would get like high fevers she would sleep with her back on my back like the whole night um that's beautiful. Like they really have a sixth sense about this stuff, don't right, they? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. The third thing, <laughs> this is really bad. And like, I don't want any other limes to follow. This. <laughs> Bread. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. I really have a thing for bread. Like, there is nothing in this world like the smell of fresh baked bread and eating like, fresh bread. Like and butter when it's like hot. Oh, <sighs> when it melts on the bread. I know. Sometimes you just have to like, this is the thing is like, Like, we know it can be an an inflammatory food for a lot of people. I'm with you on this one though. It's like, yeah, I spend most of my time not eating gluten, but sometimes you just need to eat the fucking bread. Yeah. Like, and the butter. (laughs) Yeah. Lately it doesn't, it doesn't bother me currently and for now, but yeah, I know in the beginning it was, it was rough. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, like, God, I can give up candy. I can give up cake. I can give up anything sweet. Like bread like I'm a pastry exactly like same. a pa- like pastries oh, oh my, my god. god when you get out here i'm gonna take you to tartine and you're never gonna forgive me <laughs> <laughs> it's funny next near the llmd there's like a huge bakery and i was Interest. like of course yeah yeah of course of course, of course. these, these right things here. it's these dichotomies that are always sort of <laughs> Placed side by side in our in our world, aren't they? Right. Yeah. Just like also identities of black and white, and identities of like uh, sick and well. I mean, it's right. It is the great um, leveler, I guess, or you know, <laughs> something. Yeah. So, so what is your ask for listeners today? What can they do to support you and the Lyme community, particularly the Lyme community that consists of people of color who? are not as well represented 
from a medical and social perspective, what can people do to support your work? Um, well, I mean, me personally, um, they can subscribe like to my blog. Honestly, I had this plan when I started the blog to like have like one blog post a month. Mm. <laughs> that didn't work. Out, wow. <laughs> of course, because you the know, lime is real. Up, up and down. Yeah. So yeah. Um, my plan is to actually start um, like a small clothing line. Wow. Uh, yeah. Currently. Um, so this weekend, I'm shooting my first short film. <laughs> oh, my gosh. This is amazing. And it's about everything we just talked about. Wow. So documentary style. Um, it's more like a narrative. Okay. Um, drama. It's only wow. 30 minutes. Because that's, you know, it's a lot that's of money. It's still a lot of work, though. <laughs> Production yeah. is a lot of money. Um, yeah. It'll be finished by the end, finished filming by the end of this month. Mm. Wow. Um, Good for you. It should be done by, like, May. Can't so, wait to see it. We're going to have to have you back on the show when this is yeah, released. It's titled, Your Labs Are Normal. Because mm. I've been hearing that shit for how long. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, hopefully, like if people can support that, that'd be great. Also, but I'll Hell like yes. share more of that, like on Instagram. Um, if people don't know, it's Negra con Lime, um, N E G R A <laughs> C O N Lime. <laughs> and what about your blog address as well? Give us your URL. It's the same thing. It's uh, lime.com. Perfect, and we'll um, link to this on the webpage for the episode too. Yeah. So. Yeah, like I just wanted to um, start like with like small things like T-shirts, hoodies, like hats, um, anything that helps with like symptoms that we have. Yeah. So. And and what's next in your health journey? Uh, I guess getting this organ out. <laughs> That's a start. <laughs> Bye, gallbladder. <laughs> um, and then after that, I'll start a new antibiotic protocol. But it's pulsing antibiotics, so it's not every day. Okay. It's the idea is like you have one day antibiotics, then you kind of like detox the next day. Antibiotic detox again. It's kind of trying to just get everything out, um, and I hope that works. So I don't we'll have be to be on these you. other pills because, like, literally, I take like twenty pills a day, and like sometimes you just start like gagging. <laughs> Like yeah, like, it's a your lot. throat is like already like, and I wake up in the morning, my throat's like, oh god, here we go again. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Risa, is there anything else you'd like to share before I set you free? <laughs> Fortunately, I'm Puerto Rican, so I can like keep talking. So <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> I guess part two. <laughs> yeah, around <laughs> your film release. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, I'm so excited for that. Like. So am I. This sounds I'm really cry, wonderful. Like, literally. Well, this then it's also a culmination like, of all of your passions. Yeah. Like, not for nothing. Like, these past few months have been, like, life-changing. Like, what the hell? And I hate saying that because, like, the world is literally, like, burning down right now. And I'm like, wow, a lot of good things are happening to me. <laughs> I say embrace it. Like, you live for 10 years yeah. with no good things happening. Right. You know, like you are allowed to have some joy in the middle of a global pandemic. Right. I would actually say that to everyone who's listening, right? Like we're allowed to also find joy when things are dark. Yeah. Yeah. Raisa, it has been such a, a, an absolute pleasure having you on the show. And I'm so glad that we connected. I can't wait to have you back. You are <laughs> open invitation. Um, you're welcome <laughs> to come back anytime. And 
Um, I hope when the world is safe to travel in once more, we'll be able to actually connect in person. Um, but I am really, truly just bowled over by your generosity and sharing your story. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you took the time today to share and, and to give us your energy. So thank you so, so much. And get yourselves tested for Lyme guys. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Right. Like if there's nothing else you learned today. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, I've, I've also seen like, if you look, if you, I don't know, remember like what the websites were, but there are some places. Cause I know a lot of doctors are like, we're not testing you for that. Like, they'll push back. <laughs> yeah. So there's some places. Cause I know I did hygienics and hygienics is I spent a thousand dollars for testing, yeah. but there's some other places now where like, since Lyme is kind of, becoming more of a conversation Mm. where you can get tested for it and it's way cheaper now that's interesting if you remember any of the links i have to look back please send yeah it's super it was way cheaper than like you know because i know hygienics is i mean it's really expensive yeah well and that's the thing is like so many people are like they can't even afford the in-depth testing but if there's more affordable options then please do share with us. And, and, um, for those who are tuning into this episode, uh, I will post any additional links that Risa shares or that I am able to find on the webpage for this episode. I know there are also a few, uh, connected to episode 118, which we did with Dr. Kelly, um, who's an LLND in Chicago. She mentioned a few different labs yeah. um, that do Lyme testing, but I think it depends specifically what you're looking for in terms of co-infections. Especially. Yeah, that one, that's a tough one. <laughs> it gets more and more complicated. Yeah. Um, but we will absolutely continue to post these resources. Um, and I'm so grateful that you brought it up and that you are speaking out um, and living your life out loud <laughs> and finding moments for joy in the middle of, yeah. you know, 10 years of, of illness and misdiagnosis and being misunderstood and finding your way to the light <laughs> at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Very, very happy to hear that you're on the mend in that sense, yeah. you know, we're not there Almost. yet, but keep working toward it. Yeah. Almost exactly. Risa Pereira, thank you so much, and we look forward to welcoming you back thank soon. Thank you. That's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. 